Welcome to Deep Natter. In this episode, Sean and I are talking about output. Not in terms of what we produce, but how the work we make is presented to an audience. For example, are you only sharing your work online, on platforms like Instagram or Twitter, or do you also make prints? Maybe you make photo books or show your work in galleries. How our work appears out in the world can have a dramatic effect on how compelling it is to a viewer or an audience. We also talk about the new Bond film, No Time to Die, specifically the score and how brilliantly Hans Zimmer took one of the most recognizable pieces of music in cinema and really made it his own. Here we go. How you doing? You all right? I am hanging in. Yeah, good. Oh, that doesn't sound promising. No, no, it's fine. I haven't really done much today, honestly. I've, I've done more audiobook editing, mm. which is uh, fine. I'm sick of the sound of my own voice. I'm glad we're doing this. <laughs> <laughs> and, you can uh, get sick of my voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sick of someone else's voice. Um, yeah, I try more line and wash stuff. Just... Uh, makes me realize like how far i have to it's kind of nice though like because i i've realized like doing this how how out of my depth i am you know and sort of i've also realized most of the stuff i'll share online it's it's is better than your average person can do when it comes to photography but but when i when i share little things i've made trying to do like line and wash stuff it's it's childlike in its in its, it's simplicity it takes you right back down doesn't it really it? <laughs> really does but it's good because it, it's i find it more exciting than the photography because it's back yeah. to the beginning of something it's back to not knowing anything and every little discovery you make is really exciting there's not i don't think i mean there's no more huge technique discoveries to come in photography i don't think that i'm right. gonna go wow this changes the game you know it's just everything's like increments now uh, but back to the beginning of something is, oh, oh, when I do, when, when I wet the paper first and then drip the color in, it makes this cool thing, which kind of looks like clouds. It's really cool. You know? Right. Right. It's like, it's like earth shattering discoveries every day that, that make you get better faster. And that's kind of, that's kind of cool. I like it. Wait, wait till you get into alcohol and alcohol inks and no, using, no, uh, take, take some rock salt and drop little bits of rock salt into the pigment and watch Ooh. what happens. Ooh. <laughs> you see what I mean? Like that. I mean, uh, I'm going to do all of those today now. I'm going to pull the gin out of the cupboard, <laughs> <laughs> pour it into the paint, throw some rock salt in and see what happens. It's yeah. Little or, or uh, dip, dip a, uh, an old one that you're not going to use again, dip an old toothbrush into alcohol and, and flick it into uh, semi-dry paint and watch what happens to it. Oh, cool, man. Yeah, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Like there was a guy who was, uh, I was following a tutorial with a guy who was painting um, this lovely little scene. It's just like a gate uh, with a path coming through and a huge tree kind of overhanging a lot of the frame. And when I saw, they'll often show you the before. And I'm like, how mm-hmm. has he got all those? I mean, that's just hours and hours of leaves that he's painted on there. And then he does it. And it's like, it takes him about 20 seconds. And he's just got this old, messed up acrylic brush that he dips in like very, very sort of strong, 
almost like a blue-black watercolor because you haven't thought about mm. it in your head that actually those leaves are in the shadow, so they're not green; they're blue-black. And he, and then he's kind of just he's just really messily painted the stuff over. But because you take that step back when you look at it, it's like, well, those are leaves in the shade. What else could it be? And it's just it's just right. The, right. the simplest techniques to get to something that looks so cool. Like how do you how do you create a picture with as few moves as possible? I'm I'm fascinated by that. It's the same with the line drawing stuff. How do you convey the shape of something in as few lines as you can get away with? Is mm-hmm. is really really cool. Um, I've been buying um, uh, uh, graphic novels just to kind of have a look at this stuff as well. So I've got two by a guy named Craig Thompson, I think it is. Uh, one called Blankets and one called Habibi, just to kind of look at how he does this stuff as well. I, I, I think I told you I got the Calvin and Hobbes complete collection right. last week right. but like just to see how these guys are doing what they're doing um and it's i mean it's such a skill it's yeah. it's crazy you look at this and go like oh well that's easy because i could copy calvin by just putting it in front of me and drawing it yeah but could you come up with that character in as few lines as possible or your your own character from from scratch could you do that because i can't um not without it looking like a child's drawing how do you do that it's often, it's often the stuff that's so easy to replicate, but so difficult to create from scratch uh, that I, I think is, I think is really interesting. So, yeah. Well, and it's a whole new world of influences, inspiration, and, and just input that's going to like directly guide and inform the line and wash work. But it's also, I, I bet, going to indirectly influence your photography as well. Well, the the interesting thing at the moment is I'm finding how how much my photography is influencing this for me because I mm. think I think I can I'm not good at it yet at all, but I think I can see where the shadows need to be because of how I play mm-hmm. with them in in the photography that I do. So because I'm hyper aware of that stuff in real life, it, it's 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 maybe giving me a couple of steps ahead in that one area of line and wash is putting in shadows. Okay, I can kind of see where that should be. It doesn't look good yet. But I, but I can, I can, I think I can get there fairly quickly. And now it's a case of making it look right, um, which right. is cool. It's, it's. I love how everything kind of bleeds into each other. It's, it's. I'm so glad you're having a good time with it. I was hoping that you would. It's just fun, and it's just for me. That's the thing is, it's not for anyone else, and I don't. Ha- it doesn't have to be anything, you know. Yeah. And I, I kind of want to protect it as that for as long as possible. It's just my thing that I, I, I kind of do. You don't know this about me unless you know me, kind of thing. Is, mm-hmm. is every mm-hmm. now and again he he tries this thing that he's not very good at, but he kind of digs it. Right, like you know that's well, and and it is giving yourself room to express yourself in a way that doesn't have to be posted, monetized, commented on, oh yeah, uh, critiqued, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, yeah, it's great. One thing I did learn not not to bore you on this too much because like is 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 oh, how... it's not, are you kidding? It's not boring for me at all. Yeah, but th- I mean, this is this is something you are actually a master at. Like I, I'm I'm uh, well, but, I that's mean, a but paint... that's very generous. That's that's well, but I mean, compared <laughs> to me, the 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 kind of yeah. painting art world is something you are like like decades down the road in, and I'm I'm. I've just ordered a kit off Amazon and I'm stumbling into it like there's quite a, a chasm between us, but like. I, uh, the, the, the interesting thing was I found I could easier follow a tutorial where a guy is drawing out those lines and, and painting in, but I, I found it really hard to translate one of my photographs into line and wash because you're having oh, to, really? yeah. Cause you're having to take, 
in a photograph, it, it all the all the complexity is there that you could want. You can zoom right mm-hmm. in and see blades of grass if you want to see mm-hmm. them. So it almost makes it harder to simplify it back down because there's too much to work with. So and and that's the trick, isn't it? Is to try and is to try and distill it down to the bare bones that convey the mood of a scene rather than trying to put in every detail. Well, that's certainly what the, the route I'm trying to take is something that's slightly more graphic novel-y, cartoony. And that's that's really tricky. Which line do you draw? Which line don't you draw? You don't draw a right. blade of grass, but then do you, do you draw the bricks in the wall? Or you, do you just kind of draw some, some shapes that sort of convey that it's got bricks in it? And how many of those shapes do you do? How dense do you make it? All these kind of decisions you've got to make that I'm finding really tricky and I'm, I'm making a mess of it, but that's how you learn, isn't it? So it's fun. Yeah. I love yeah. It. Uh, one, one little trick that we were taught early on to, to kind of give your brain less detail and it's, it's very simple, but it's also very effective uh, is, is when you're looking at something, just squint because mm. your eyelashes will then reduce the amount that you're able to uh. see physically. Uh, and, and it reduces the detail in an image uh, to just its its larger pieces. I'm doing I'm doing it now as we're talking with the with the photograph I've got framed on the wall in front of me. It totally works. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Just so just just kind of squint when you're looking at something, and it removes a lot of the detail and just leaves you with the bigger features. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. How's your yeah. painting going? You seem to be on an absolute roll at the moment. Yeah, it's going really well. Um, I've, I've even reached out to some painters and, and collage artists to get them on Process Driven. And uh, it, it's, it's inspiring me. Just, just the idea that I'm going to be talking to painters rather than photographers, for example, is inspiring me to sort of up my own game and, and get down in the studio more and... and uh, try some different things. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun actually. What are you, what are you learning at the moment? Cause we, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously preempting you a little cause we talked about it, but I, I think some of the stuff you're learning about, uh, creation size versus presentation size, um, and especially like advice you've got from different people is it sounds like it's opening things up for you hugely. Yeah, it really is. And it's something that, that honestly I haven't you know, I haven't given it a lot of thought. And, and in talking to photographers, very few photographers, at least that I've spoken to, are printing their images in that, that Bertinsky, Crudson, you know, 40 inches, 60 inches on a side oh, yeah. size, right? Many of the photographers that, that you and I know and follow and have spoken to, you know, 16 by 20, uh, 20 by 24, maybe 20 by 30. Yeah. But that's about you know, the, the, the largest that it gets. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And what I'm learning is, is specifically in the art world, because that's, that's where I'm trying to, to learn more and, and grow more at the moment. Not only can you charge more for a larger piece. So there's the financial end of it. There's the, the, you know, the monetization piece of it, but there's just, there's a much more almost visceral, I guess, response to seeing some of this work larger. I mean, you've commented a few times on, as we've been kind of talking about these things about, you know, me making some of my pieces instead of eight by eight inches, 10 by 10 inches or a foot on a side, uh, you know, 
two and two feet on a side, three feet on a side, even four feet on a side, how much more dramatic some of these types of images would be. Mm. Uh, and, and, and walking into a gallery, for example, and seeing, you know, a half dozen of these in a row, three feet on a side versus, oh, yeah. you know, eight or 10 inches on a side. It's a dramatically different experience. Yeah. One of the things that I run into as a, as a limitation, uh, as does anyone who, who uses original collage material is the size of the ephemera that you're able to put in the pieces, right? If I'm, if I'm pulling from, you know, a vintage life magazine, if I want that particular image or that column of text or whatever to be the full size of the piece, I'm limited by the size of that source material. Um, I can scan and, and enlarge and then reprint, but I do like using the original yeah. ephemera when I can maybe it doesn't add anything visually per se, but there's something about using that original material that I like. Now I may have to backpedal a little bit on that and figure out some different ways to do it. Or one of the other things that, that, and this is what you and I talked about a little bit is treating my smaller collage pieces, treating my smaller paintings as negatives in quotes. Um, to use to create larger versions of them and they wouldn't be prints they wouldn't be simply making copies i'm talking about you know i would for example let's say i've got a 12 by 12 and i photograph that in high res i make an emulsion transfer of that 12 by 12 piece uh, and i then build let's say a two foot by two foot or a three foot by three foot panel which i then collage texture uh, and, and create a new substrate. And then I, I lay that emulsion transfer that I've printed out over the top of it. So that this is, it's, yes, it's taking that original artwork from the smaller piece, but then it's combining it with a new handmade, uh, substrate that's been textured and painted and collaged to create something new again. That's, I'm sort of being inspired by my own work in a way, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but, but then I end up with that three foot piece that I couldn't have done, you know, in the same way or didn't do in the same way. And in the ways that you, you choose different substrates or play with the substrates, you're creating unique one of a kind pieces Yeah, from your negative, but you get to hang on to the negative as the artist, I think is great. And I think every photographer in the world would be like, that's, that's how it should be done. That's brilliant. You, you keep control of the original piece. It's really cool. I, I think it's incredible and I'm, I'm really excited about it. And I have to, I have to really thank Richard Boutwell. Um, mm -hmm. Richard has been, uh, not only a, a, a supporter and a champion of just getting this work done, but we were talking about, about printers and, and he recently helped me find and, and pick up a 24 inch, uh, Epson printer, which is going to open up so many possibilities. You know, imagine, you know, like taking a sheet of, of, you know, 22 by 30 watercolor paper and silver leafing the entire surface and then running that through and printing one of my pieces on top of silver leaf wow. or gold leaf or copper leaf or printing on sheets of aluminum or printing on sheets of wood veneer. Uh, these, these large printers like this are able to print at least Epson. I don't know about Canon or HP, but the large format Epson printers are able to print on what is effectively matte board, 1.5 to 1.6 millimeters thick which wow. opens up an incredible amount of possibilities. 
for different types of substrates for my work. Maybe not, you know, that's not applicable as a photographer because you're printing on by and large, you know, photo paper, but for the type of work that I do, I think it opens up a lot of doors and it's got me really excited about um, the type of work that I'm going to be able to make again. I mean, I remember I had one of these, I had a, an Epson 7600 when I was in California and couldn't take it with me when I moved. Um, and it's, it's one of the only things that I miss not being able to have taken. So now having, you know, another wide format printer is going to, I think, really change the game and, and, and open up what I'm able to produce and still keep those, those originals as negatives, if you will. I love it, man. Because it's, it's you getting, for me, for, for as long as I've known you, it's you getting excited, as, as excited about the creation as the presentation and seeing the presentation as it's almost its own art form as well, really. And, and mm-hmm. I think for, for, for my money, when I look at your work, I love when you post to Instagram and you've got the full frame so I can see what the piece is. But then as I flick through, I've got all these amazing details. And it's the kind of stuff which I think really translates to that bigger format because you might yeah. lose it at that size. You really, really need to get your nose up against it. Like, like someone like CJ Henry, who is... Mm-hmm taking small objects and photorealistically um, drawing them with colored pencils to be huge. And someone else who, who, who I've met um, uh, online, she's from London, uh, Noreen Hamad, who's doing beautiful, beautiful stuff. Beautiful um, stuff. Yeah. Re- yeah really in both gorgeous. cases, incredible technical skill. Yes, absolutely. And just absolutely photorealistic. But what the, I think the fascination that people have with work like that is a look how much detail on how close I can get to this thing that's actually quite small in real life. Mm-hmm. So you sticking to the fact that you're going to use ephemera at the size it appears, you're going to use the brush sizes that create the texture at the size that you like to see it in real life. And and you're, you're distressing things and pulling them back with particular tools that create distressing at particular you know, sizes, millimeters wide or yeah. microns wide, to then take that and present it to the world big for me, for my money, adds like an extra level of fascination because mm, mm-hmm. you're letting me close to something I don't get close to unless I've got my nose up against something at that size, which is not an ideal viewing experience. So I reckon, right. I reckon this almost like elevates it and creates a new thing out of this amazing thing that you do. So I, I couldn't be more excited for you, man. I think it's brilliant. Thanks. Yeah, me too. You know, and and I have to thank also somebody uh, who who I think is, you know. Supremely creative, and I am inspired by him a lot. A Christopher Matheson, who, and this must have been, gosh, this must have been two years ago now that we talked about this. Maybe even, maybe even further. But he had this idea, and I, and he did some experiments around it. He's always experimenting with his own work, which I think is fabulous. Uh, but he he would print out a photograph, and then rephotograph a section of that photograph, let's say a, a, you know, a two inch by three inch swath of a photograph, let's say, print that out at the same scale as the original photograph, and then repeat the process, pick a two by three area of that, print that out at the same scale as the original photograph, and watch how detail changed as you effectively zoomed in and magnified you know, it's sort of like the, uh, the Esper machine in Blade Runner, right? You know, mm-hmm. uh, enhanced 2719, yes, you know, and I thought, you know, how cool would that be for my own work to take these areas of incredibly dense texture, 
photograph those high res and make a new piece from that section of texture at two foot across, three foot across, whatever it is, um, and, and show that side by side almost as a diptych with the original image to see how and, and, and to what degree those things become relatable as the same piece when they're next to each other. That's exciting to me. Mm. I, I just can't wait for you to have this printer in your space and just start running prints and playing because I think yeah. you're probably going to discover a ton. And then there's probably things you haven't even thought of yet. You've already got a ton of ideas, but that I'm sure there's going to be happy accidents that are going to happen too in the process. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, it's allowing me and inspiring me to look at other people's presentation, to look at their output, you know, going back to, to look at, for example, Ben Horn's box set of prints mm. or your annual collections to see how people are presenting not only individual work, but collections of work. Because that's where I think, um, I think my work is almost stronger when you see it in context with the other pieces that I've produced. You know, they're, they're the, the, the one-offs I think are interesting, some of them, uh, some more than others. But I think when, you know, for example, I've got at the moment, because I'm working on volume two, I've got the entirety of, of the new propaganda volume one up on my wall. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at that while I'm creating the next sort of iteration of that. And seeing all of those things in, in one block is super cool. Yeah. Much, much cooler for me than just seeing the individual pieces. So I'm starting to think about how to present this work. And that's leading me back to the zines, for example, that we talked about. Yeah. And doing, uh, you know, I, I, I come from kind of the record era. So I'm thinking about maybe offering um, limited edition print sets of New Propaganda 1 and New Propaganda 2 presented as double album sort of gatefold editions where you've yeah. got six prints in one sleeve where the record would go and six prints in the other and it opens up and there's another new piece in that gatefold um and that's all you know would be made by hand and and signed and numbered and all that so it's really gotten me thinking about the presentation of the work as you pointed out not just the creation of the work yeah because i think a lot of people sort of you know, to, I guess that where people get stuck or, or where I've got stuck in the past is it's almost taking something you've made. And then I think the cynical person could go, well, that's the point where you make it a product and it's not art anymore. But I, I don't feel that way about it at all. And I think any photographer will understand this because you don't, you don't really make anything when you make a photograph, nothing physical until you print it. And then when you print mm -hmm. it, there's a whole new set of choices to make. Um, about the, the, the process you use, you know, I, I have you shot on film or digital, how much post-process are you going to do or dodging and burning in a dark room? What sort of process are you going to use to, um, to actually develop that negative, for example? And then what substrate are you going to use? I mean, I've seen beautiful black and white prints printed on sheet bronze that were done mm. in, um, a, a township in Africa where he, this guy went in and was just photographing workmen who were, who were, you know, fixing roads there. And so there's loads of kind of muscle and skin and the rest of it, which looks beautiful in black and white, but oh my gosh, it looks incredible when a black and white image is printed directly onto sheet bronze. So it almost glows with a, it sounds incredible. It. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful do to you, see. Do you, do you have a link offhand? Could we put one in the show notes? I don't, I'll, I'll, I'll look it up. If we do, we'll, we'll pop it in. I, because I only saw it in the flesh. 
flesh. I never saw anywhere online. And this was actually, you've heard me tell the story before of taking the prints uh, to go, uh, the prints, the images I took of the Himba to go get them printed. And how I got a comment from the guy at Genesis Imaging. Um, they were all over the wall at the time. They were they were pushing these images out because their their big boast mm. as a company is we will print on anything. Um, and this guy had come up with this brilliant idea to translate black and white onto sheet bronze. And it just, I mean, again, now has he has he like well you know the images should stand on their own. No, he's creating a new, for me, more brilliant thing, and he's splitting his creation process into two stages. He's doing the capturing part in terms of collecting the images and then the presentation part is as creative for him and adds a whole new layer to the work for sure and i I think that's and i would argue a new set of skills that need to be learned and mastered to do it well absolutely because i mean because how do you process a black and white image to look good on bronze rather than fuji mat i bet you it's a different amount of contrast you need that looks good for example um Hmm. What, what does it do to your shadows? Do you have to pay attention? There's got, to, there's got to be a lot of work that goes into that and a lot of expertise on the Genesis imaging side in that case, knowing how to actually print onto that material well. And I think what you're doing is less often done in the, in the painting world where it's like, well, I'm painting on this canvas and this is, this is the, the presentation. You're, 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 going, you're, you're taking the route that a lot more, that photographers have to take, but I think a lot of artists should think about because you get to hang on to your negative, which I think is great. It's, it's always yours. I've, I've struggled with it. I mean, you know, you know that we've, we've talked about it a bit. I've, I've struggled with, does, does it make the resulting pieces somehow less than, or, or are they just different and still as original? And I, and I still don't know if I've got a concrete answer around it. And I won't know until I actually see some of the final products. Yeah. But I think the potential is there. And because that's even a question for you, you will make sure that they're unique pieces because mm-hmm. you, you, ha- you have try more, to. more than enough skill to do that. Um, and you'll find your own unique way to do that. Um, I just, I love it because like you say, the, the choice to, to, to create pieces the size you do is not a choice you can make. It's dictated by the, by the material that you use. Um, so it just has to be in a couple of different stages. And I, I love that you're kind yeah. of embracing all that. I think it's great. And, and I realize that this is a decision that I'm making for me. I know, I know several, you know, people who use collage and, and ephemera that, that use it in different ways and are able to make larger pieces than I do. But in the way that I use it currently, and maybe that will change in the future, but in the way that I use it on, on these two bodies of work specifically, I'm, I'm making the choice to use them at scale and produce the work at the scale that it is and try this new thing moving forward. Now, maybe it won't work. Maybe I'll have to uh, adjust how I use the source material. Maybe I'll have to scan and, and reprint it at, at a larger scale, but print it on newsprint that's been coffee stained or tea stained or something to take some of the newness out of it so it looks more vintage, mm-hmm. even though it's not the original material. Maybe I'll have to do something like that. I don't know. Um, but the excitement around trying some of this stuff is very high. And that, that tells me I'm going in the right direction. Absolutely. I love it. I can't, yeah. wait, to, I can't wait to see them. I think, I think it's going to be great. I can't wait to see them. At that yeah. size as well. I mean, imagine. It's going to be great. I hope so. 
<laughs> he, he says, filled with nervous laughter. <laughs> I mean, I, that's a sign you care. I like it. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I, I, I appreciate, uh, you know, how supportive you've been a, about exploring this stuff because it's, you know, it's uncharted territory and I'm, I'm effectively starting at zero as a painter. I'm, I'm, I'm effectively starting from scratch because nobody knows me as this. I don't know myself as this. So I, you know, I, I've got, uh, a, a, a long sort of history with podcasting. I've got a long history with photography. I've got a long history with, with, you know, some of the other things that I've done, but this is new ground and I'm still trying to figure out a voice. I'm still trying to figure out, uh, I, th I think I have a, a technical style that's currently where I want it to be. There's still room for growth, obviously. It's still room for improvement, but I'm, I'm still like any other maker of things. I'm still trying to figure out what I'm trying to say with the work. Um, and it, it may say something differently just by being larger. It may say something differently just by being, uh, able to show more detail, you know, in the same way that if you looked at you know, one of Bertinsky's pictures, for example, at eight by 10, but then looked at that same exact photograph at 40 by 60, you're going to have a different reaction to each of those photographs. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've only known you, what, five years now, something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, it, it's funny because I, I hear you say, you know, you're starting from scratch and people don't know you as much for this. Like I, I always felt, and this is only in the last five years, because I didn't know you before that. And I understand you've come back to painting after a hiatus. But this to me always felt like the most you thing that you do. Hmm. And, and, and but I don't really show much of it. That's no, the well, thing. that's the difference, I'm, isn't it? It's like the presentation of it. But, the, but you, you're so passionate about making it and happy when you're doing it. It's just this missing piece about how do I give this to the world? Because it's, mm -hmm. it's almost, it's a very mature uh, process and, 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 and um method and methodology from where from where i sit and, and in even a message from where i sit i know you might not feel that way but from someone looking in from the outside it looks like oh gosh you've been doing this for years this is already a, a well-formed thing the only missing piece from my vantage point was how do you how do you share this with the world in a way that people can take it in um mm -hmm. and that's I'm just really, really excited that, that that's the next stage for you because I think that's the point where people realize this is a major boat, like an arrow in your quiver that you've had for for a long time that you people might kind of know that you you do this, but when it's presented right, they're like, oh gosh, he does this. Like this is, this yeah. is, this is a thing. I hope that, so. Yeah. You know, I hope so. Fingers crossed. Firmly. Fingers, fingers crossed. Yeah. 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 And like you say, like, you know, like I've said before, like lots of times, you know, there's no guarantee that it's super successful, but I, I'm just, it, it doesn't I'm, have to be, but that's the thing is I'm, I'm just proud of you for doing it. And I'm Thank proud you. of you for finding a way to show it to the world because that's the courage every artist needs to find because anything beyond that is not in your control. Anyway, you've done your job a hundred percent at that point where you give it to the right. world and whatever happens right, right, right. to it after that is whatever it is. And, and, I, for one, think your work is brilliant. I, I, I'm, I'm admittedly you. an art idiot, but I don't think that matters because I, Me think, too. I think you're making it for real people, right? So you're making it I hope for, so. You're making it for idiots like me. And, I, and yeah. I, I think your work is fantastic. So I can't wait Thanks. 
for it to be out there on on walls in in big lush color. I think it's going to be brilliant. Yeah, and you know, I was in fact I was just talking to uh, my friend Freddie before we we picked up today, and you know, the, the like photography, the gallery systems are changing. There are galleries closing left and right, and you know, thinking about where and how to get the work out there into the world is is a big question mark still, to be honest. And, you know, I can focus on an end user. I can focus on that one customer who, who or collector who wants to buy a piece or two. But then, you know, talking to you, talking to Freddie, talking to some other people who are who are actively in the industry as well, you know, there are these other avenues that we can think about. There are you know, hotels, every hotel has artwork up, you know, why couldn't, why couldn't it be 30 pieces of my artwork? You know, yeah. restaurants have things on the walls, uh, uh, you know, corporate spaces have things up and, and around. And then, and then what happens is instead of that one piece hanging on someone's wall in their home, that one piece hangs on a wall that's passed by hundreds of people a day who, who see it and maybe have a chance to notice it. And maybe that's not the piece for them, but they like the style. So they look you up, they reach out and a relationship or a conversation is had and, and, and it takes it in, the, in a completely different direction. So again, all of these things around presentation and connection and, and, and getting the work seen and seeing the people who want to see the work and, and, and reaching out and making sure that, that I can answer questions or, or be available and they can, you know, learn about me as, as a person, you know, all of those things are kind of swirling around in my head, not just what do I make next? Yeah. Well, it sounds like you've been an artist, like the whole bag, you know? Shh. No, I take that back. Sorry. <laughs> Wipe your filthy mouth out with soap. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that, and I agree with you though. I think, I mean, I, I, I think your work will be best. Pre- I mean, people will obviously want individual pieces, but I think your work will be best presented in sets um, because I can see walking into like a beautiful, like office lobby space. that's well lit and having sets of your images on the wall. Just I like think, a grid up yeah, on the oh, would look amazing. I would be so proud, yeah. so proud to, to see that happen out in the world. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Well, any office would be lucky to have it. I think it's, it's a strike. It's very striking work. I don't know if you're too close to it, but like, and, and I think especially at size and scale, you can't just walk past it. It's very, it's very arresting work. Um, that's it's Sidoris orange comes screaming out at you. <laughs> Pay attention to me. <laughs> yes, Jeff. And, yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. No, I'm All right. Enough now. about that. Enough about that. Really? What okay. else were we going to talk about today? Uh, well, oh, we both saw, um, we, we had a half a conversation on James Bond the other day. Do you want to, do you want to dive into James Bond? Well, you had, yeah, yeah. And it was a, it was a particular, no, no spoilers. It was a particular aspect of it that you and I both, and, and I will, I will, you know, fair play to you. I've become more of a fan of him because of you. And that is the score that Hans Zimmer created for the film, which I yeah. think is one of the best Bond scores we've had. So, yeah. Th- and this, this is my thing with it. So, so, I mean, Hans Zimmer is incredible, you know, it's, it's, there's no, there's no denying, you know, I mean, okay, you could criticize and say it's a little bit like, Wagnerian Bavarian umpa music but like it works in action films and he's brilliant he's an absolutely brilliant composer um and he he understands cinema for me musically like like very few 
people, you know, it's him, it's John Williams. Like there's very rarefied air up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what, a, I mean, I, I just love everything he does. I've often got Hans Zimmer playing when I'm, when I'm working or when I'm driving, you know, because I just love the music. But when you do something like Bond, you're not allowed to do whatever you want. There's a template. Right. You have to stick that Bond theme in multiple times and, and everything has to play off that Bond theme. Um, and I just saw, there's, this isn't giving anything away. There's a sequence towards the end of the film. I mean, I mean, so, so no surprise, there's a baddie and James Bond yeah. has to go fight a bunch of baddies in the baddie base. Okay. So I'm not giving anything right. away. That's every Bond <laughs> film ever. Okay. There's a, there's a moment where, where he kind of jumps out of a side thing and, and sort of fires a shot down a, down a hallway that's reminiscent of the kind of famous, you know, Bond in the spotlight um, motif. And as that shot fires, the, the theme plays incredibly subtly and slightly dissonantly. It's not the straightforward theme. And it just, it stops you. It's like a moment. And that wouldn't work without him dropping that theme in at that point. And then there's a very long shot of Bond uh, fighting his way up a stairway. And the music in that, I, I mean, you, you can argue it's that. It's so good. Yeah, you can argue that Hans Zimmer screwed up there. It's, it's the same, like Roger Deakins talks about cinematography and says, if you stop at any point in a film and go, that's a brilliant shot, the cinematographer messed up because he took you out of the story. Hans Zimmer messed up because he completely took me out of the, the one of the most incredible action sequences um, I've seen. But I'm, I don't care because it, it was such an amazing piece of action cinema music that like mm-hmm. I was, I mean, I've, I've been listening to the, 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 this soundtrack for the last few days and I'm listening to a James Bond soundtrack. Like that's not a yeah. thing you listen to, <laughs> but because right. he took a theme, which we had to use, he had his hands tied to an extent and then created something that is, is so emotional at the right points. Um, so tense at the right points so brutal at the right points, all these things that are going on in the music. I like, I just walked away going, that was a great film. Like it's one of the best yeah. Bond films yeah. I've ever seen, but, but and can I say music, it, the music while it, despite having to adhere to that sort of, you know, dun, 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 it is still 100% a Zimmer piece. It still mm-hmm. sounds like something that he has made, not simply uh you know carbon copied from from what has come before it's such a good piece of music i think yeah it's it's amazing which, which makes me even more excited to see dune if i'm being honest because yeah. he's done the soundtrack to dune and he's wanted to to do the soundtrack to dune forever uh so to have him team up with denis and and apparently they have made uh quite a few of their own instruments because he he didn't want this this sweeping epic about uh, uh you know a different civilization across the galaxy to have an oboe in it because you wouldn't have an oboe there yeah. you'd have this other sounding thing right so they they apparently made a bunch of instruments specifically for this and then used a lot of human voice and chanting to create this this soundtrack to this to this world which i think is a, it's going to be such a treat yeah, I've heard some of the soundtrack. It's actually on Spotify, mm. um, particular tracks. And he's he's almost taken uh, a sort of Middle Eastern sounding, um, 
like quite primal yell and turning it into music underneath things as well, which I suppose, wow. you know, from, from our reference, this is what he does so well from our reference point of, Oh, okay. We're in the desert. And he's obviously going, well, what do we think about when we think about that? And also the story is these houses, these tribes fighting against each other and these people who live in the desert, where does our mind go? All right, well, let me lean into that. Let me get the most amazing, um, Middle Eastern female vocalist to produce something very guttural and raw and primal. And, and, and then you, I mean, he's done it with everything, hasn't he? I mean, the, the one that I've got a huge affinity for is the soundtrack for Interstellar. Yeah. Because he recorded Chris Nolan's, who's the director, Christopher Nolan's watch, which I think he got from his father, slowed it down a shade, um, which also deepens it a touch and uses that to base the score off. So you can hear the director's father's watch throughout a film where time, everything pivots around time. And then he goes to, I mean, one of these amazing uh, church cathedrals where they've still got these crazy colossal, you know, valve driven pipe organs and uh, gets one of the best organists in the world to play this score and then records it in that space to capture the acoustics. Um, and I've seen there's a, there's a great behind the scenes of his work on that film as well, where he's got he's 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 playing with vertical space as well. He's putting choirs up in the balcony and recording from the ground floor, so you can feel the elevation and lift and space of something in a film about time and space. You know, there's all these layers to how he's thinking. How can I translate big concepts through musical things, most of which people won't pick up on consciously, but maybe subconsciously right. will help take them there. And I just that's a master. I mean, that's, yeah, that's an absolute yeah. ninja at what he does. Well, and, and I think he did, you know, kind of going back to, to Bond and what had come before, I think he did an equally brilliant job on Blade Runner 2049 with a tip of the hat to the work that Vangelis did, but still making it his own, still mm. making it sound like it was of that world, but still a Zimmer piece, not just yeah. copying what Vangelis had done. Yeah. I mean, cause that's, that's, kind of hallowed ground that Vangelis score oh yeah uh, and it's yeah. and yet yeah it, and yet if you try to pull that kicking and screaming into the 21st century it doesn't it doesn't quite translate and carry it's it's a little it's a little cheese and yet he's he's got enough nods in there that it's 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 definitely present but he's he's updating and carrying it forward and I, yeah again how do you i mean have you ever watched a film Hans Zimmer's done the score for and gone, that wasn't great music. It's just, it's just always <laughs> knocks it out the park. You know, you can't say that of every actor. You can't even say that of every director. I just haven't ever heard him do something that I've thought, ah, you could have worked a couple more hours on that Hans. <laughs> <laughs> I think where, where he's different from, from composers like John Williams or, or Danny Elfman, who are incredible, incredible composers and I'm not taking anything away from them. But I think there's a little more of an obvious signature to a John Williams piece or, or, or an obvious signature to a Danny Elfman piece, oh, yeah. for me anyway, than there yeah. is to a Hans Zimmer piece. That's true. I hadn't thought about that. You're right. You'd know it straight away from the trumpet fanfare that John Williams was in the house. You're like, all right, here it right. is. Here right. it is. But, but Hans has done a lot of different things. Yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, yeah, he's pirates. He's... Uh, He's the Lion King. He's he's Gladiator. Chris, Chris Nolan's films. Yeah, Gladiator. 
um, you know, um, Dunkirk, obviously, which is like its own thing as well, which also features ticking time pieces as well, because that's a lot about um, running out of time, which I think is really clever. To Dune, which is going to be this. Didn't he do? Didn't he do one of the Spider-Man movies too? One of the Marvel films? I'm sure his IMDb is nuts. You look at it. I don't know how he has the time for it. I did, I did his masterclass. Did I tell you that the masterclass.com thing? So oh, no. I went through his no, masterclass. No, no. Here's a question I always had about music, and I, I still don't have an answer. So does the music get time to the film or the film to the music? And I think it's, it's got to be a push and a pull because what, what he does in the masterclass, which I think is interesting, is a director will come to him and say, it was interesting, the story about Chris Nolan and Interstellar actually was that Chris Nolan came to Hans Zimmer and said, listen, I've got this story about a father uh, and his daughter and having to leave home and the strain that puts on the relationship and he can't get back to her when he wants to. Doesn't tell him anything else. Doesn't tell him it's in space. Doesn't tell him it's a sci-fi. Just tells him that. That's Mm. all the information. He said, go write me the theme for that. And he writes that theme and he says he was really grateful that he wasn't given that other information because he might have been tempted to make it more on the nose. So he creates this beautiful father-son theme that could work in any film like that. And the sci-fi is almost separate from the rest of it, that then he's just adding layers to it later. But what he does is he, he's got that theme and he just writes ideas and a long sort of musical notation spreadsheet and records audio ideas on a huge open, uh, I don't know, Cubase file or whatever it is. Um, and when he's got all those ideas down, he knows he can create pieces of music from those snippets and ideas. And hmm. then I'm assuming, I don't know if you, you might know more than this. You've had more in the movie world than I have. I'm assuming then they go out and they film everything. Then they, then they cut everything together without the score because they'd have to. Yeah. There's, I, I think typically there's a rough cut right. that then gets sent to the, the composer because they'll have they'll have the thing playing you know in in the that's studio right. that's right on the big screen with the, the orchestra yeah. and and the composer conductor uh up front and i think that they'll that they'll i mean i don't know if this is the way it's always done but uh, i think maybe there's there's a push and pull like you said where where certain uh certain themes are woven in throughout but if there is a a piece that has to be sort of timed to an action sequence or timed to, you know, I don't know, a car chase or whatever. Uh, I, I think it would make sense to have that stuff in the room so that you could play to it. Because what fascinates but me... But I don't know, is what I'm saying. I don't know. Yeah, because I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, I've, I've often seen them sort of the orchestra playing with the film playing in the background. But what, what fascinates me is you'll get that cut. And like in the case of the Bond film, uh, the latest one, you know, there are, there are hits with the orchestra that are timed to physical hits or gunshots that mm-hmm. do not fall on beat three of four, four timing or whatever. It, it, it's, it's music. I mean, and I'm no great shakes musician, but like when I did play, everything's kind of mathematical, but you, it, it, things fall at particular points and you have to, 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 to fall accurately on a point, it would have to fall on a beat, for example. But Music in film can't do that. It has to. It has to flex. It has to be able to speed up and slow down. Hits have to happen when they happen, not when they make most sense in a bar of music. Which means the composer has to be really plastic in the way that they put the music together. And I think, I think that's like another layer of 
it's not just writing a theme. It's, it's writing a theme and then, and then slotting it in so that it works and breathes according to the timing that, that a director and editor to put, put together an editing suite, which I think is, is brilliant. It's amazing when you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, there's a, if, if you want to see something cool and you've, you've probably seen this, but if you're, if you're listening to this and, and this sounds interesting to you, there is, um, an edition of Mad Max Fury Road that George Miller released called the black and chrome edition. Oh yeah. And it's just, it's, it's all in black and white and there's no dialogue. It's just sound effects and the score and that's it. Uh, and you get to see this, this incredible film, uh, without, you know, the, the potential burden of dialogue and you just get to hear how the music carries us through as an audience or informs us or, 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 or prompts us or pokes us to feel a certain way or, or focus on a certain area or whatever it is. And it's really fascinating to hear just the music because in it, then I guess it would be akin to being in the studio with, you know, with the orchestra playing. Um, I don't, I don't know if they get, you know, if they're able to, to mute the dialogue or, or, or whatever when they're, you know, when they're mixing or, 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 you know, producing the work, but it's, it's kind of fascinating to hear the music alone and, and see the, you know, the movie. I met someone this weekend who, who recently went to a film where the audience, uh, the, the orchestra performed the music live over the film, which I think must be an amazing experience. I'd love to do that. that So basically they they strip out the music track and then the, the orchestra plays the score for the film live while you're watching it. Must be incredible. Oh, that would be an amazing experience. Yeah. Do you know what the movie was? I can't remember now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you had one job Tucker. I had one one job <laughs> man but I just oh hey what movie was it didn't think to ask no I know <laughs> she definitely told me well, I totally forgot how so let uh, me ask you something when you come home from Interstellar or the Bond film or you know s- something that that really hits you musically do you, does it inspire you to sit down at the keyboard and, and kind of start plunking around and, and playing with ideas or are you so, are, do you go the other way? Like it's, that was so amazing. I, I can't even bring myself to even try to do anything. Where, where do you kind of fall after, after going to see a, like a Hans Zimmer score, for example? I mean, I, this, this is probably a chat for another day, but like my, my relationship with music now is, is a, it's complicated in terms of me playing stuff. It's, uh, it's complicated. It's complicated. It's Facebook complicated. If you, if it's, you, if your music had a Facebook profile, yeah, it would, yeah. it would be listed as it's complicated. Me and Sean, it's complicated. It's, uh, it's difficult. I, I almost feel like, um, I kind of needed a decade from the church to, to detox from bad habits. And I haven't, I haven't got out of them or, or I'm too afraid to see whether they're gone yet. Plus the fact that I'm struggling Wait, to get bad right. musical habits. Yeah. Yeah. Because what, would you be willing to share yeah, one? I, like what, what is a bad musical habit well, that you inherited from the church? There, there are, there are, I mean, it's, it's the cliche. There are particular chord structures and modulations and changes that are contemporary Christian music-y. If, if I'm sitting down to write a piece of music, for example, write a song to, to move from, if I, if I'm on a chord I like, and I'm, I'm playing with a melody, the next chord I move to is the churchy chord I would move to. 
when I was playing that sort of music because they repeat those patterns so often. And I, I'm trying. And is it intentional? No, it's just the place you go, almost like changing gear on a car. You just know when and how to do that thing. And, And I'm trying to get all that out of my system to start from a blank canvas again so that I, I'm not going to go to the obvious choice. I'm going to find something more interesting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step out of the safe spaces I normally play in to find something more interesting. I mean, I, I, when I used to play music in the church, I remember the one, and I, and I wasn't a very churchy musician, um, as church musicians went to, and thankfully, because I, I, I was part of the, the music for um, a church in Soweto, which was um, an all-black African church. I was the only white guy there, and I learned more musically there than I've learned anywhere else. I didn't see a sheet of music. I didn't even see a sheet with chords written on it for the three years I worked there. Everything was intuitive. And, wow. So and, you were just uh, picking up on what was around you and learning from the other musicians. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and how they played and, and, and the sensibilities that they had picked up. Um, and then when I went to work for the next church after that, when I started playing for them, I got, I got, I I met with the, because I was in charge of the music, I I met with the, the music groups together and we were like working out what songs they were playing and what things we'd like to add. And I was showing them versions of songs. And one woman put her hand up and said to me, I'm sorry, please stop. The, the, the chords you're using aren't, aren't Christian chords. I'm like, what the hell does that they mean? Aren't Christian chords? Wow. She either said they aren't Christian chords or they're not church chords. And I'm like, I didn't know there was a rule. But obviously, having worked in this other church, I picked up jazz inflections or tried using relative minors in particular songs because I thought it sounded more interesting. But you needed to stick on GCD and not screw with it because they were out of their depth the minute you stepped outside of that. So even though wow. I was I was far more progressive than, than most people in churches, I still know I had tons of those bad habits that I would fall back to. And those, those very same, you just make, I mean, because I can't read music. So everything, as, as John Mayer says, everything like has just gone into his head and it's just shape and color now. Like that's how it feels. Fingers on a keyboard. I'm making shapes that I know work. I, I know what they are basically, but it's more about the shapes that I know work and your, your hands move in those shapes and to get outside of them, you, it, it feels unnatural, but you have to do that to find the interesting stuff. So I feel like I've been on a decade-long detox trying to get rid of those bad habits, and I'm, I'm a way off getting back in to... Uh, and, and, and the way that I am getting out of those habits is by listening to a lot instead of trying to play a lot um, and trying to understand it, which is why I do stuff like take Hans Zimmer's Masterclass, because I want to know what, what real musicians do, you know, not what people who can fool church guys with a few chords they know like real musicians what do they do how do they do it and and that's that's it's kind of an unlearning to relearn so okay so let me, i'm going to put you on the spot here cuz i you, you love being put on the spot my favorite <laughs> <laughs> thanks uh, other than other than john mayer the continuum years uh who who is making the kind of music that you would like to be making like if you if you could point to someone and go yeah i think if i were a musician that's that's the kind of music and that's the kind of career as a musician i would like to have is is there someone that's that's sort of nailed that for you yeah there's a lot i mean i've got quite an eclectic taste in music i'm, I'm a massive r&b fan so i mean i i can listen to like someone like brian mcknight for ages 
um, who's like an old school. He, he's the male R&B singer that they wheeled out in the 90s with all these female divas because no one else could keep up with these women. They were just weren't male singers of their caliber. So anytime Celine Dion and Mariah Carey or Whitney Houston needed to do a duet, Brian McKnight came up because he's the only one who could keep up. He was amazing. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so, so the R&B sensibility I love. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, obviously I'm hugely into Jacob Collier, but Jacob Collier is, is light years away from where I will ever be. And, and he's a proper musician. Like I'm not, I don't consider myself like a musician, musician like that. Um, honestly, honestly, actually the person currently who I'm listening to a lot is, uh, Phineas, who is, uh, Oh, Billy Billy Eilish's brother. Sure. Because I think that he is is a is a masterful songwriter doing a lot with a little so if you pick his songs apart um and i've watched behind the scenes of him sort of putting songs together there are not you know a hundred tracks in his logic session there's maybe Mm -hmm. he can put something together that sounds really intricate and amazing with eight to ten tracks and and it all makes sense it's all in its right place and i really respect people who can write songs that communicate, but they're not having to use a thousand pieces and tons of effects and software and instrumentation to, to kind of throw noise at you. They can keep it super stripped back and simple and everything's in its right place. Those are the people that I've, I've, I think are really, really good at what they do. Um, so he's someone for me, I'm, I'm learning a lot just by listening to how he puts things together. Do do you think he will ever match his sister in terms of, of popularity or will he Will he kind of always be, you know, the Richie Sambora to John Bon Jovi? <laughs> Al. Um, hey, no disrespect. Richie's a phenomenal guitar player. Yeah. I, I, I don't think so because I, 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 whilst I think Billie Eilish is incredible and I think, her, I think yeah. her voice is brilliant and I think her choice to sing the way that she does is, is definitely a choice because she can belt them out if she wants to, but she chooses not to. I think is very brave and good for her. Um, but I think I think if we're being super honest, a lot of Billie Eilish's appeal is not to do just with her music. It's to do with who she is as a person as well and what she represents for people, especially women who are struggling with with self-image and expectations. She's bucking a lot of that and people need that. So I think a lot of her popularity and rise has been mixed in with that. And that's to take nothing away from the fact that she is an amazing vocalist and songwriter in her own right and, and deserves everything she gets. But I don't think Phineas has that, that extra layer to what he does. Um, he doesn't have the same depth of message she has yet. And mm-hmm. so I think as a songwriter, I'm, I would guess he's better as a songwriter. As a producer, he's undoubtedly better. As a vocalist, I don't think he's a better vocalist. I like his voice. I don't think he's a better vocalist. But no, I don't think he's going to... I mean, you could argue, though, that would he have even had the success he's had now if it wasn't for piggybacking off what what Billy's achieved? Um, so, yes. And I mean, you could look at that the other way, too. Would she have achieved the success that she has without without him as a writing partner and a producing partner? I think they work yeah. really well together from what I've seen. I do. I love their relationship. I mean, watching yeah. watching the videos behind the scenes of them sitting in their bedroom with Billy sitting on the bed cross-legged, which is a terrible posture to sit in while you're trying to sing. It like squishes your <laughs> diaphragm to nothing. She doesn't care. And like, she doesn't care. And he's just at the computer and that's how they produce whole albums. So they're not beholden to 
to uh, huge record companies who are forking out massive money for studio time. They're like, no, no, we'll do it. And we're going to keep control of yeah. it, I think is is the way to do it in our day and age. And yeah. I, I love seeing how they work together personally. Yeah. I think it's fantastic. It's great. You it's know, lovely. she she played here in D.C. at a little dive punk club called the Black Cat oh, cool. in like 2014. Uh, 2014, 2015. It was before... So I think it was the year before I came to visit for the first time she played at this little, and it's, you know, I don't know, 400 people that it holds this tiny little place. Uh, but she played there and now she's, you know, the last time she was here, she played Capital One Arena, which is, you know, <laughs> yeah. massive, massive or Verizon, Verizon Arena, I guess that's what it is. Yeah. And good for her. I mean, I think, yeah, I, I love seeing those kind of stories, you know, because you can, you can imagine sitting around just singing tunes to each other or showing each other ideas. And they're kind of still doing the same thing. I read something this morning that they, they now, uh, they've, they've set up their same little studio set up on the tour bus. Oh, that's so, great. And uh, when apparently when Billy gets off stage, it'll often be quick bit of press as she'll run to the bus and go here, let's, let's, let's do some more vocal layers on that one track we're working on. And while they're driving into the night, she's singing away. He's recording on the bus. I love that. How amazing is that? That's really cool. Yeah. And they're unstoppable because it's still fun, you know? Yeah. Your point about it being fun and your point about it being, you know, it doesn't have to be in this lavish studio environment that they have gotten some incredible, incredible results out of very modest settings and a very modest collection of kit. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you know the, um, she, her, probably one of her most played famous tracks is that bad boy track. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's kind of an outro for that track where there's like a, a reverberating bass note and then she's sort of like speak rapping over it for a few lines and out. That reverberating bass note happened because she had an old stereo in her room where she was playing these bass notes off a keyboard and it, it was rattling around because it's old. Oh, wow. You know, it's just half falling apart. And she's like, no, I like the sound. So they record that sound. You wouldn't know, but it's because the thing they were using was broken, but it sounds great. That's really cool. Yeah. Sometimes it's okay to be broken, Sean. <laughs> it's not my fault, Jeffrey. <laughs> it's not my fault. <laughs> Sometimes broken is good. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. We've overshot this one. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. Subscribe to Jeffrey Sidoris Everything in your favorite podcast app to get episodes of Deep Natter, along with Process Driven, and everything else I release all in one feed. And if you'd like to support the show and help others find it, please feel free to leave a review or a rating wherever you listen and share it on social media. You can connect with Sean on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Tuck. That's S-E-A-N-T-U-C-K. On his website at seantucker.photography or by searching for Sean Tucker on YouTube. Connect with me on Twitter and Instagram, at Jeffrey Sidoris, that's J-E-F-F-E-R-Y-S-A-D-D-O-R-I-S, -E -E or on my website at jeffreysidoris.com. You can also send me an email at talkback at jeffreysidoris.com. I'd love to hear from you. And as always, thank you very much for being here. We appreciate your time, we appreciate you listening, and we hope you'll come back for the next one. Thank you.